Wasn't that a powerful prayer? Take everything I have, my hands, my feet, my voice, my silver, my gold, my thoughts, and my life completely. Powerful. Thank you, Annie and uh, Claudio, for reminding us that this is just the beginning. Something really starting. The, the real event happens next Friday, next Friday night. And I'm so proud of uh, these students at Loma Linda University. You know, I've had the privilege of working, <clears throat> pastoring on a, on a university campus. 23 years now I've been uh, there at Andrews University in the Pioneer Memorial Church. And this much I have learned. Campuses can come up with all kinds of strategic plans and programming and um, emphases, but there is nothing that will impact a campus more significantly than something, a movement that is initiated by the students themselves. And so when you talk about getting together on Friday nights now, 6.30 at Drayson Center, whoa, um, we need to be praying. And then through support, say, hey, let's band together. Let's do it. Let's impact the world for Christ. Take my hand, take my feet, take my voice, my silver and gold. Take everything. Take all of me and use me for your glory. Because that's what we need at Andrews University. Let me tell you what we need. We need a movement. We need a movement of young adults. I'm convinced that it will have to be your generation. I happen to be a baby boomer. You've heard of them? Strange creatures. We have not done what needed to be done. We tried hard. We got distracted along the way. We have sunk our roots so deep you can't move us now. We have so much of this world, so much of this life, possessions. We can't get us to. We can't move us an inch. It just—it's just part of the human cycle. We need a generation now, highly mobile, instantly possessed and energized by the mighty third person of the Godhead. That's what we need, guys. You're it. You are it. We didn't do it. God needs you. And if you don't do it, you'll raise up your kid brothers and sisters. You'll have to. But I believe you, you are what God has been waiting for. Praise God. Proud of you. I want to pray with you and then plunge into uh, this is rumor number two. Three rumors. Introductory session last night over at the uh, church. We're in a war. Intensification. No question. Jesus himself at Calvary experienced the ultimate intensification that will finally be manifested again at uh, the last chapter of earth's history. Three rumors. I hear the sound of the approaching tread. Rumors from the east. Rumor one at 9.30. Rumor two now and rumor three at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Let's pray. Holy Father, take our hands, take our feet, take our voices, take our silver, take our gold, take our wills, take our hearts, take our lives, take us, use us, dear God, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. It's all about the one we call friend and master. He's here. His Spirit is hovering over us. Make this a saving place right now for your glory. In Christ's name, we all pray. Amen.
have a very special guest that uh, I've invited to come and join me this morning. Just a little bit of time here at the beginning together. Every now and then I like to have uh, somebody special to come and just kind of talk with and interview. And this seemed to be the right uh, this seemed to be the right place and time for this guest to come. And so those of you that have our guests, just bring them on up here. Sometimes guests come in their own power. Other guests have to be helped, and this particular guest has to be helped uh, to the front. But if he can make it here, she, well, you, we'll just have to decide. But I want my guest uh, oh, well-dressed for the Sabbath. Hallelujah. Nothing like a little Sabbath white for this occasion. Be very careful. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jeff, please, all the way up here, yes. Yep, ah, lovely, lovely. Lovely. All right, just, yeah, just, you can take the uh, shroud off, actually. Oh, my, these are, yeah. There's just something you look at every day around this university. I understand. This is a uh, seventh-year med student that... Uh, <laughs> said, I'm just going to stick around. I'm not leaving this place. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, the skeleton, the human skeleton. You've met one before. I have a feeling that in a class or two that you take here at Loma Linda University, you run into uh, this man, woman, uh, one of his cousins or her brothers or sisters. Just a very lovely portrait of the inner structure of the human organism. I've invited our friend to come and stand before us this morning for a reason. This friend represents 206 parts. I needed a 206-part system. 206 parts, isn't that right? Come on, help me out. You guys are the authorities. I don't know diddly squat about what I'm talking about <laughs> for this part. This is a 206-part system, isn't that right? 206 bones, come on. They're 206 pieces that make up the... Uh, the uh, average human skeleton. If we wanted to ascertain together, you and I, as young scientists and uh, worshipers, we wanted to ascertain together, how many different ways could you put together 206 variables, 206, a 206-part system? We would calculate it this way. I mean, these are some of you are mathematicians, and you can you can verify this. If there's one part to the system, how many different ways? Are there to put one part together? One. One times one is one. Okay, so there's only one way. If there are two parts to the system, how many uh, ways are there to put the system together? Huh? Mm -mm. One times two. Two. You can put them this way, you can put them this way. They're not four ways. Come on, guys, just two. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> If there are three parts, how many ways to put it together? One times two times three. What do we got? Six. If there are four parts, one times two times three times four gets? <laughs> Help me out, guys. All right. Yeah. And five parts and put it up to 120 and so on and so on and so on. This, this is called, this is called, if we got all the way up to 206, it would be called the 206 factorial. 206 Factorial. All right. Now, there's supposed to be a slide that goes on here that uh, isn't going on there. So, hold on for a second here. 
So one times two times three times four times five times six times seven, all the way up to 206. The number that you get, when you multiply them all the way out to 206 over here, that number would be how many different combinations are available in a 206-part system. Now, that number is a huge number. I just need to tell you that it happens to be the number one, the number one plus 388 zeros. If you multiply out to 206, one with 388 zeros, would you like to see the number? This is the number with 388 zeros. Okay, there it is. There it is. That's the number. That's called the 206 factorial. It's written, it's written with the 206 and an exclamation mark after it. That's how mathematicians write it. 206 factorial. Now, where are you going with all this? Well, let's just think for a moment as we um, move into this second rumor. This rumor from the east. Let's just think for a moment. I, I need to do some real thinking right here because there's something not quite right in this uh, technology. Tell me when the screen goes blank. Good. Uh, somehow. Okay. Ah, ah, ah. Well, I tell you. What would we do? Without, oh, I didn't get it back on. What would we do? Is, tell me when you see something on a screen. Nothing? What? Let's get the skeleton to come down and help us on this one. Is anything on screen yet? How about now? Oh, good. All right. Guys, I just wanted you to see this part because uh, somehow the slides while I was out of the room uh, got advanced a little bit. But there it is. That's how you write it. 206. You write an exclamation mark after it. That's called the 206 factorial. It is 206 factorial is 1 times 10 to the 388. I really want an excuse just to do this one more time. And so uh, <laughs> let's just go through this. All right. Now, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, a 1 with 388 zeros after it represents a number of the 206 factorial. Jerry Bergman, who is a scientist, the second PhD, by the way, in human biology, is from Northwest State College in Archibald, Ohio. He wrote an essay that I read, and he's writing. He's writing about the human skeleton. Now, let me quote him. He says, the achievement of only the correct general position required. So this bone connects to this bone, connects to this bone. It doesn't mean this bone's right side up, just that they're connected. That's all you're getting for a 206 factorial. The achievement the achievement of only the correct general position required for all 206 parts will occur only once out of a 10 to the 388th random assortments. So how long? So here's the question. How long would it take us if we could just do one of these and just keep rearranging them, 206 bones, just rearranging, 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 how long would it take us to, to finally get this creation? Why don't you take your uh, study guide, please, for a moment, and jot these numbers down. How long would it take us? Rumors from the East. This is number two, entitled Eastgate. By the way, you see a little, uh, you see a uh, website 
at the top of your study guide. If, if we go too fast and we just leave a, a, a blank um, unfilled in, you can go to the website, you get the study guide there, and the answers are all at the bottom, and so you'll be able to uh, fill the study guide in. But would you go to the study guide real quickly? Because I want to do this arithmetic with you while it's still fresh in our minds. We've got to turn to this, uh, to this second rumor from the East. If every second that is available, if for every second that is available in the history of the universe, and uh, scientists are saying, look, the history of this universe as we know it can be, help me out, guys, be, be somewhere between 10 to 20 billion years in length. Isn't that what they're saying? 10 to 20 billion years. So if we could rearrange this 206-part system once every second, for every second that has existed in known time, and we did the arithmetic. Did you already get this part down? Let me, let me hasten on. Rearranging these 206 parts once every second for all of astronomic time. Let me get my, uh, the laser going here. Between 10 to 20 billion years or 10 to the 18 seconds. That's, that's how many seconds it would be for the existence of this universe as we know it. To get this possibility, you take 10 to the 388th and you subtract 10 to the 18th and you get 10 to the 370th. Okay, that's a, that's a probability. Now, your faces are looking as blank as I'm feeling right now. <laughs> Don't bail out on me. All right? Jerry Bergman. Now, here we go. Jerry Bergman, for all practical purposes. Now, here's his point. For all practical purposes, a zero possibility exists that the correct general position of only 206 parts could be obtained simultaneously by chance, and that's just for a 206-part system. The average human has 75 trillion complicated individual cells within the human organism, all right? So just for a 206-part, guys, look, this is a 206-part system. It is a zero statistic uh, probability if you subtract the uh, amount of seconds available. If you did it once every second, a zero probability that you could ever get these, not in the perfect position, but at least connected in the right order. It's a 0% possibility for a 206-part system. Now you add the 10 billion cells that we have in our cortex, the human cortex right down here. We have 10 billion complicated cells. You factor them in, coming up with actually 75 trillion total. Do you understand that if it's a zero probability for a 206-part system to be assembled randomly, it would be zero less zero for a 75 trillion Part system. Now, guys, you're the ones that know all of this. I don't understand these kind of numbers. But I want to think with you. I want to wrestle with you for a moment. I want you to, I want you to take the 10 billion of these uh, cerebral cortex cells that you have in existence right now and really start using them. Just concentrate on your cerebral cortex right now. Will you just concentrate on it and, and move those cells into operation? Because... If you add in the human organism with 75 trillion cells, Dr. Jerry Bergman, human biology PhD, a second PhD, this illustration indicates that the argument commonly used by evolutionists, given enough time, anything is possible. Would you write it down? The argument is wanting. It's wanting. Do you know what wanting means? It means it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If it takes that long, just one assistant. Now, I've got some more numbers up here, and they're so, they're so out. It says if you did a billion changes every second, a, so you took every electron in the universe, every electron, 
and you did a billion for the number of electrons, a billion a second, you still come up with a probability that is impossible, humanly impossible, not only to imagine, to accomplish. So 206 part system, 75 trillion part system that you and I are, and you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with this second rumor from the east that comes the approaching tread of another rumor? I want you to listen very carefully to Holy Scripture. Let's go to the Bible. I want you to wrestle with this. You use every one of those, those cells in your cerebral cortex. Let's go to the Bible's last book again because these, these rumors, there are, three, there are three mentions of the word east in apocalyptic literature. Daniel, Revelation, so only three. Three references. Those are what's intriguing. And you, just, you say, Dwight, how'd you ever get into this? Because I've been intrigued with what's coming out of the Middle East right now. As I told you last night, I have a son-in-law, Andrew. He's a medic. He wants to go to med school when he's out of the U.S. Army Rangers. He's a medic in Baghdad. Stationed there right now. We're in a war. I'm not talking about the Iraq war. I'm not talking about Iran. And by the way, you want to really Google something fan, uh, fascinating, just Google Iran-U.S. war. There are talking heads all over the universe now that are positing the probabilities that soon will be drawn in deeper than we've ever known before into the Middle East. But I'm not thinking Middle East. I'm not thinking Islam. I'm not thinking Israel. I'm not thinking Iraq. I'm not thinking Iran. I'm not thinking any of the eyes. There are three other rumors. And these three rumors from the East, the direct quote from the New American Standard Bible in, in Daniel 11:45, these rumors from the East have my attention. And because I'm watching them, when Annie wrote and said, hey, did you come here? to spend a few hours with us, I said, I want to share the rumors. I want to share them with you. Fascinating. Have you already found the book of Revelation? You already there? All right. Revelation chapter 7. Did I, already say, did I say that? Revelation 7. This is a reference to the east. There are only three of them. We had one at 9, 9.30. We have the, the third one at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Here comes wedged in between. This is number 2. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel, Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Put it on the screen for you. Hope you have a Bible. If you don't, follow on the screen. I'm in the New King James Version. Any translation you have is fine with me. Revelation 7, verse 1. After these things, John the old man. Last night we noted John and Daniel, both old men. Jesus, very personal friends of Jesus. He shows up for both of them in person. Wouldn't it be something if Jesus showed up in your, in your little apartment here in Loma Linda University? Wouldn't it be something if Jesus showed up one day, just showed up and materialized in front of you, said, boy, I've been thinking about you and just came to see how you are. Girl. How you been? Wouldn't that be something? Oh, mercy. Thought it happened to two. These two dear friends of his. Okay, after these things, I, John, saw four angels standing at the four corners, north, south, east, west, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. By the way, I just, this is an aside, but I happen to believe that's exactly what's happening now, that God and Almighty God, through the forces of the kingdom on this planet, they are literally holding back, holding back. Karen and I were over in England last summer. Been doing some preaching over there. We were flying back. We flew back. Went through the incredible checks to get back. Soon after we got back, well, while we were in England, the, the Israel-Hezbollah war, you know, that, that little uh, short 18-day fiasco, that erupted. We got back, okay. And right afterwards, three weeks later, Scotland Yard announced they tracked terrorists who were planning to take 10 transatlantic flights. 10? You heard about that, didn't you? 10? And be, through, low, through, through liquids that they were carrying in their... Cosmetics, they were going to blow 10 planes up over the Atlantic. Ladies and gentlemen, just think for a moment. Just think for one moment. 
If those ten planes had gone down, do you understand that it would have shut down Earth's travel as we know it, perhaps indefinitely? Because they would have said, how could we, our security, how could you pull it off? The point is, here's my humble point. When God's ready to let this go, he says, okay, we've had enough time. Everybody's had a chance. All he has to do is say, angel, let go. I believe that heaven itself helped. Is it M3 or M5? What's the British M5? Yeah. He said, hey, watch out. My people are not ready. The world must yet be reached. We cannot shut travel down yet. Hold the winds. I'm coming soon. Just hold the winds. I need a people. So I can mobilize one last time. A people who believe with heart, soul, and body in me alone. So they ain't, I believe they're holding the winds. Okay, verse 2. Let's go to verse 2. So just finishing verse 1. The wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now here's verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the what? There's our key word. We're looking for the three references to the east in apocalyptic literature. Another angel, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice in the Greek, megalephone, megalephone. Say that real fast when you get an English word. Megalephone, megaphone. Megaphone means loud voice in Greek. This is not a whimper. When this moment comes in human history, this will be a shout that is heard to the four corners of earth. Another angel rise up and say, hold it, hold it, hold it. Don't you let those winds go yet. We must see you. We must see you. Who's going to get sealed? Well, let's read it. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And he cried out in verse 3. He said, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants, the friends of our God in their foreheads. Now notice verse for summation, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel were sealed. Wow. Hey, would you jot this down? Let's say, let's just pretend, and for many of you, this may be the first time you've ever read those words in your life. So there's no pretending on your part. If you've ever read these words before, let's pretend this is the first time you've ever read these words. Let's, what do we know? What do we know from what we have just read? Would you jot this down, please, in your study guide? Number one, what do we know? We know that whatever is happening here must transpi transpire just before the return. Anything in, uh, uh, in yellow and underlined, those of you that are joining us right now, anything underlined and in yellow is inserted into your study guide. That's your cue. All right? So we know that whatever is happening here has to happen transpired just before the return of Christ. Let's take a look at this verse. This is the verse immediately preceding Revelation 7, verse 1. We'll put uh, verse six, chapter 6, verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Because Jesus returns at the end of Revelation chapter 6. And the question that wraps up that mighty second coming moment is, whoa, the world is coming to an end. Who could possibly live through this? And the very next words in chapter 7, Oh, I'm glad you asked. Let us tell you who will live through that. And boom, you have now what we've just seen, the sealing out of the east. Okay? So, number one, we can know it's just before the return of Christ. Jot it down. Number two, these 144,000 are a symbol of God's friends at the end of time and are the answer to Revelation 16's question. Who will stand up for God in the end? Hey, we got a whole bunch of friends we want to talk about. Hey, Dwight, are those really a literal 144,000? Are you crazy? No. God has more friends than that on this planet. Give them a little credit. That's a symbolic number. Twelve apostles, twelve disciples, twelve sons of Jacob. It doesn't matter. Just take twelve, twelve, multiply it, and then 
Because in the Greek, you just want to say, wow, this is a huge number. Multiply that by 1,000, 144,000. That's what you get. It's symbolic. Symbolic. Okay, number three. What do we know? The symbolic seal in their foreheads is the Father's name and is a symbol of his, write it down, ownership. Let's take a look at the Father's. Where does it say that about the Father's name? Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked. Now oh, you just turn over. You're just seven chapters away. Might as well read it out of your own Bible. Then I looked, John said, and behold, a lamb. Who's the lamb, by the way? Come on, who's the lamb, young theologians? Oh, the lamb is Jesus Christ himself, the, the post-Calvary Christ. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. That would be heaven. And with him, 144,000, having his father's what? His father's name written on their foreheads. Quiz time. When you put your name on a book... What does that, what does the, what does that act tell the world? The book belongs to me. When you put your name on that car registration, what does that act tell the world? This car belongs to me. When you put your name on the, on the uh, papers for your house, what does that act tell the world? This house belongs to the bank. <laughs> you, you didn't think you owned it, did you? You don't own it. Boy, here in Southern California, you have to live two lifetimes to own a house. Wow, I don't know how you guys do it. Incredible. When you put your name, hey, hey, when you sign, when you sign that marriage certificate, what do you say? She belongs to me. And if she goes ahead and signs it, and she has a choice right up to that last moment, if she goes ahead and signs it, she's saying, yep, and you belong to me, boy. No, guys, that's the truth about marriage. When you sign, when you sign before the state, then you come to me or uh, Pastor Randy, you come and say, now we want to do this before God. But when you sign it before a state, you're saying, hey, we own each other. Mutually belonging one to another. Nobody has a high hand in marriage. It's a covenant between two equals. We belong to each other. Signature. So when God comes along and says, yep, 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 yep. Put my name. Yeah. Mine, 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 mine. He goes through the human race. Which of these that belong to me? Which of them? Which of them are mine? Ooh. So we know that. What else do we know? We know finding number four. We know that God has ownership because, hey, why does he have ownership? Write this in. He is the creator. Oh, mercy. He is the creator. Look at this. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. You own us all. You created all things, and by your will they exist, and we're created. The whole universe belongs to God, and if you were created by God, if you were created by God, my dear friend, you belong to Him, not to yourself. You guys hate to break this to you, but you don't even belong to you. If you were created by Him, now if you were created by Him, you belong to yourself. You see, that's the rub. That's the rub. Brilliant, a, a brilliant geneticist named Richard Lewontin. He's also an atheist. He made this quip. He's absolutely right. Materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We cannot allow somebody to own us. I am my own God. I belong to me. And nobody tells me how to live. That's the whole point. See? God says, I have, a, I, have, I have a claim on you. Girl, boy, I got a claim on you. I made you. You belong to me. Mm. There they are, four realities we can know without even 
read in this text more than once. But does, here's, here's the question. Does this text that we just read, Revelation 7, verses 1 through 4, does it identify how these end-time friends of God will reveal their loyalty to the Creator? Does it reveal it? Oh, yes, it does. I want to I wanted share these seven evidences. When these seven evidences are through, I'm sitting down. Just boom, 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 boom. Write them down. Seven evidences to know what it is about these end-time friends of God that reveals their loyalty to Him. Would you write it down, please? Evidence number one, they are sealed with the seal of the key word, living God. Write that in, please. They are sealed with the seal of the living God. Let's read Revelation 7, 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. You see, that's a key word. The, the phrase, the living God, appears 30 times in the Old and New Testaments. Two of them, I have them in, they're there in your study guide, Jeremiah chapter 10 and Acts 14. Let's just go to the Acts 14 one. Because when you read these 30 references, it's clear, and you need to fill this in before we go to Acts 14. Jeremiah 10, two examples out of the 30, revealed that the living God is synonymous with the, jot this down, creating God. Code word, code word. Living means creating. Living means creating. Make sure you get that point. That's crucial. Living means creating. Let's go to uh, Acts uh, 14, verse 15. <clears throat> Acts 14, verse 15. Living means creating. All right? Acts 14, 15. So here, here, here's some of the early, uh, early preaching in the church in the New Testament. And what are they saying? And they're saying, okay, men and women, why are you doing these things? We also are men and women of the same nature as you because they were trying to worship Paul and uh, Barnabas. And they say, time out, time. Please stop. We're just like you. So why are you doing this? And we, we're here to preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, these idols that you worship, turn from them to the living God who made... See, wait a minute, go back. To the living God. See, we want to know, what does living God mean? It means he's the one who made. So whenever you see living God, it's code word for the creator who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Therefore, the seal of God. Here's what we got. Evidence number one, the seal of God that symbolically goes in the foreheads of God's loyal friends is the seal of the Creator. Now, let me just do a little bit, a little more science with you. I promise not to do any more than this. Just a little more. I've been reading John Ashton's collection of essays entitled, In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. All right? And I've learned as I've read these uh, brilliant minds, much more brilliant than... than uh, than mine, they've made a point, and this point has stuck with me, and I, I, I want to make it with you, and that is both theories of origin, whether, you talk, whether you're talking about naturalism, that would be Darwinism and evolutionism, evolutionary uh, theory, whether you're talking about naturalism or supernaturalism. You know what supernaturalism means? Something outside of nature stepped in to take charge. We would believe, if you believe in a creator God, in supernaturalism. But it's interesting, these scientists are positing, both theories of origin, and that's all they are. They are theories because nobody was at the first cause moment. Was anybody there when the Big Bang took place? Nope. Was anybody there when Genesis 1 took place? Nope, nope, nope. So nobody knows. Both theories of origin are dependent on human faith. And both philosophies of origin posit a form of a God. Both of them have to have a form of a God. You're saying, what are you talking about? Ah. Here is Jeremy Walter, who teaches engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. He has observed naturalistic evolution is forced to marry the gods, listen now, the gods of Mother Earth and Father Time in order to support its hypothesis. 
They have to turn time into a God and nature into a God. Given enough time, they say, the forces of nature can create life. So they end up with a de facto God. Of course it's a de facto God. It does something you cannot. It's not falsifiable. It's not verifiable. It's just, you just have to take it. it. They just don't ask me how they do it. They just do it. Both theories, when push comes to shove, both theories require a faith statement that there's something much bigger than us, like a God, that starts this thing. Ooh. Ever heard of uh, Stephen Jay Gould, the late brilliant evolutionist and uh, apologist for evolutionary theory? The, it, it, because of this, because both theories require de facto God, Stephen Jay Gould used to teach at Harvard University. He has uh, since died recently. He, it led him to exclaim that humans are a glorious evolutionary accident, I'm quoting him now, that required an evolutionary accident that required 60 trillion contingent events. You need all of these to happen, 60 trillion of them. And that even if evolutionary history on earth repeated itself, he said a million times he doubted whether anything like Homo sapiens would ever develop again. Brilliant mind. I don't know. We just got 60 trillion lucky strikes. And we're here. Now, I do not want to belittle that position because brilliant minds embrace it. But let's let push come to shove. You end up with a de facto God. You have to. Or an accident that could happen only once in 60 trillion contingent events. Ladies and gentlemen, we're an accident. Either an accident or strategically planned by a brilliant mastermind. That becomes the choice. So, evidence number two. We labored that one. Therefore, the seal of God that symbolically goes in the foreheads of God's loyal friends is the seal of the Creator. Okay, we know that. Living God means Creator, right? So that's, that's what we know. Okay, let's go to evidence number two. The angel that brings the sealing message. Fascinating. Ascends out of the where? Out of the east. Would you jot that down, please? We've got to fly through these seven. Jot it down. He ascends out of the east. We're, we're examining these three references to the east. East is very significant. Now, remember the interpretive principle. I told you in, the, in, in our last service that uh, my friend John Pauline, and he and I have talked about it. I see him now in this service. We've talked about this, and John has made the point. They're either echoes or allusions, but nearly every word and phrase in the entire apocalypse, that's the Bible's last book, is borrowed. Every word and phrase nearly is borrowed from the Old Testament. So we need to find out about this east. Let's just do a little bit of mining with east. Why does it say that he comes out of the east to seal God's end-time friends on this planet? Let's go to an amazing... You have never been to Ezekiel 46 in your life, probably. So we're going today. Ezekiel chapter 46, Old Testament prophet. Watch this. Fascinating, fascinating. Ezekiel chapter 46, 46, verse 1. Thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the what direction? Toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the, what's this word? On the Sabbath, that east gate, on the Sabbath, it shall be open. And on the day of the new moon, it shall be open. Now, verse 3, likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway before the Lord on the Sabbath and on the new moons. Would you write it down, please? The east gate in Jerusalem's temple was to be the Sabbath gate. Ezekiel's talking about a day when God can build a new temple. The east gate is to be the Sabbath gate. Now, that's a critical point. 
six cycles of earth's rotation must go by. Six cycles. That gate is shut, shut, shut. But on the seventh cycle, when the sun sets and that seventh cycle begins, that day, the gates swing open. It's the Sabbath gate. The east gate is the Sabbath gate. Please note, ladies and gentlemen, that east is linked to the Creator's Sabbath. Not surprisingly, by the way, the very word for east here in the Septuagint, which would be the Greek Old Testament, is the identical word that appears in Revelation chapter 7. Same word for east, antole. Same word. Clearly, east and Sabbath are linked. Interestingly enough, evidence number three, Luke does the same thing. He links the east with the Sabbath. Watch this. Fill this in, please. The gospel that calls Jesus the sunrise... That's Luke 178. Do you know that Jesus is called the sunrise? Now, we noted this morning, that last sunrise teaching, that Malachi chapter 4 says the sun of righteousness will what? Rise with healing in his wings just before the end of time. There will be an explosion of Christ's glory on earth shining in the faces of his friends. There will be a final revival on this planet. So east is linked to Christ. And in fact, Luke says he uses the actual word for sun, east, in newer, our new translation is called Jesus the Sunrise. Now, isn't it amazing that the same gospel writer that calls Jesus the Sunrise also calls Jesus, write it in, the Lord of the Sabbath in Luke chapter 6, verse 5. East and the Sabbath are linked together in Christ. So what do we have so far? What we have is that the angel that rises out of the east with the seal of the living God for his loyal friends, what does he do? Number one, he brings the seal of the Creator and he brings it from the east, which is the sign of the Sabbath. And he brings it through him who is the divine sunrise, who is known as the Lord of the Sabbath. John himself now, not to be left out. John himself will make the same point in the book of Revelation. Evidence number four. Remember now, we're looking for seven evidences to identify how God's friends at the end of time will be identified on this planet. At Loma Linda and Andrew and anywhere on earth. Evidence number four. There are only seven of these. Jot it down. John in Revelation links Jesus as Lord of salvation with Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. Would you jot that down, please? Let, let, let's read the salvation one. Oh, you remember this. Revelation 1, verse 5. This is greetings from, and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. By the way, is that a... Is that a is that a powerful portrayal of Calvary or what? At the cross, what did He do for us? He, what's it say here? He washed us. Is there something on your life right now? Come on, come on. Is there something in your heart right now that you wish to God that that stain were not there? My friend, do you know what? That stain is only there in your own mind. It is not there in the heart of God. Jesus washed us. He washed the human race with His blood. Hiya. You deal with a lot of blood around here, don't you? Good for you. Every time you see a drop of blood, and some of you live around it, every time you see a drop of blood, let there be a paradigm shift in your mind. And whenever you see human blood, just remind yourself, this, when it came from Jesus, was a cleansing force for the entire human race. He washed us from our sins. You got something stained and smudged on your heart right now? You got to take it to Jesus fast. My man, do not walk through these doors today. Do not walk out these doors until you have asked Jesus to wash you clean. Do not walk out these doors. You don't have to live with that stain. He's already washed you. Just claim it and walk in the power of the blood of the Lamb.
Yeah, so John is really, oh, he is huge on Jesus as the Lord of salvation. Jesus has made us, by the way, he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so John is big on Jesus as Lord of salvation. Is he big on Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath? Well, let's find out. Revelation 1, verse 10. Remember this? I was in the Spirit on what day? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice, a loud voice, megalophone. I heard this megaphone shouting behind me. I whirled around, and he sees the living Christ. Whoa. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, there's something fascinating about Lord's day here. Would you jot this down in your study guide? The intent of John, just be reminded of this, in the apocalypse is to accentuate the divinity, the divinity of Jesus. John wants to make sure that his readers embrace the divine reality of Christ. Keep your pen moving. You see, John lives in an empire, the Roman Empire, that worships the Caesar. In that empire that worships the Caesar, John is making a point. No, 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 no. We do not worship the Caesar. We worship the Christ. Put it in there, the Christ. That's the point. And so what does he call the day of worship? He said, I was in the spirit on a what day? That's amazing he, because in his own gospel, he doesn't call it the Lord's Day ever. This is a unique phrase. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. This is the Lord's Day. Matthew calls it the Sabbath. Mark calls it the Sabbath. Luke calls it the Sabbath. And John in his gospel calls it the Sabbath. But now he's making a point. This is not just the Sabbath. This is the Lord's Day. And that's the way you and I have always read those words. This is the Lord's Day. John's saying, wait, wait a minute. No. This is the Lord's, the Lord's day. Caesar versus Christ. This is Christ's day. I was in the spirit on Christ's day, the holy Sabbath day. He could have called it the Sabbath, as he did in his gospel, but he intentionally inserts a phrase he's, nobody else has used in the New Testament to draw our attention that this is the day that belongs to Christ. Whoa. Jesus was Lord. And so I was worshiping him on his day when suddenly he appears to me. Like the rest of the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, John exalts Jesus as both Lord of salvation and Lord of the Sabbath. So would you write this down, please? There's the, there's the Luke reference. The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. But would you write this down, please? In order to emphasize Jesus' divinity and lordship over all creation, only here, I'm sorry, I got a little behind, only here does John call the seventh-day Sabbath the Lord's and underline the Lord's. The point is, this is the Lord's day. Now we'll get where I'm going. So the seal that goes on the forehead, okay? Quick wrap, because we're moving to evidence number seven in just a moment. So the seal that goes on the foreheads of God's loyal friends at the end of time is a recognition of him as creator. Through the Sabbath, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Evidence number five, jot it down. The Old Testament confirms that conclusion. Amazing. Take a look at this. The Old Testament confirms the conclusion. Let me just run the three references by you real quick. Whoop. There we go. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law. Would you write it in? Your law is within my heart. By the way, Hebrews 10 tells us that Christ himself speaks these words. Jesus himself, when he was here on earth, said, Oh, God, the Father, I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart. You want to be like Jesus? You want to be like Jesus? The law goes in your heart. Old Testament confirms it. Your law is within my heart. Look at this, Isaiah 51, 7. I love this from the New Living, by the way. Listen to me, you who know right from wrong, and cherish my law in your hearts. 
God's friends are people who cherish His law in their hearts. One more. Isaiah 8.16. Hey, and this is one-liner. Seal the law. Hey, you're looking, to, you're looking to seal people on this earth? You want to find my friends? Seal the law. Seal the law among my disciples. You ever seen, a, ever seen an official seal? Have you? You've seen an official seal, haven't you? You know, every time our president, God bless him. You know what? I don't know what your political affiliation is. It doesn't, doesn't matter to me. None of my business anyway. You don't know what my political affiliation is. That's none of your business anyway. <laughs> but whoever is in that office, 1 Timothy 2 is absolutely clear. I beg of you, pray for the king. Pray for the king. You may not be doing it the way you would do it, or the way I would do it, but you know what? Romans 13, he's sitting in that office. He bears the authority that is loaned to him from heaven itself. Every time you see this picture, there he is, George W. Bush. Every time you see George W. Bush give a news conference or a speech, you see this little round thing on this podium? That only goes on one podium on earth. Wherever the president is, the seal goes. Three ingredients that form a seal, by the way. Name, George W. Bush. Office, residence. Territory of the United States. Three ingredients to a seal. Name, office, territory. Is there a seal? God says, seal the law. In my last friend's honor, seal the law. Seal them. Seal them. Ah, is there a place? Let's go. Evidence? Found in the fourth commandment. Oh, boy. You've read these words before, haven't you? Let's read them again. Hey, let's read them out loud. You know what? Let's just do, do a little something. It's getting warm in here. Let's read them out loud. I'm moving to the punchline. Don't bail out on me now. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Why, why, why? Why the big deal about the seventh day? God says, let me tell you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. There is only one commandment. Would you jot this down, please? Only one commandment of the ten that bears the official seal because the Hebrew is acquainted with the seal. The word for seal is the same, describing the same seal that we have today in the Hebrew. There's only one commandment that bears the three ingredients of the seed of God himself. And would you write it down? It's the fourth commandment. You just read it. We just read it out loud. Keep your pen moving. The name. Okay, we have the name. The name is Yahweh. Anytime you see Lord, all caps, it's the Hebrew name. Jews today would not even, they would not even, they would not even name the name. They'd say Adonai, which is little case Lord. So we, we bold it. We put all caps to mean Yahweh. The name, the Lord your God. The office, ah, the maker of heaven and earth. The sea and all that in them is. Well, what's his jurisdiction? That's it, exactly it. The heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. There's his seal. 
You have His name, you have His office, you have His jurisdiction. Clearly, just as the New Testament does, the Old Testament links the seal of God with His office as Creator as memorialized by the seventh-day Sabbath of which Christ is the Lord of in both the Old and New Testaments. He's Lord of the Sabbath. It's a big deal to Him. may not be a big deal to you. may not be a big deal to me. It's a huge deal to Him. Do you think it's a huge deal to George Bush that he still has that seal? Oh, it's a big deal to him. He said, I don't care what the polls or pundits say. I got the seal. I'm the man. It's a big deal when you have the seal. It's a big deal when you have the seal. Christ has the seal. I am he. Made it all. I spoke it into existence. Except that one. I did that one in my hands. I leaned over a hunk of earth. Could have spoke the human race into existence, but they're too precious to me, these earth children. They possess what only this order of life and the whole intelligent life in the universe possesses. I will grant to them the power to procreate in their own image, just like me. There is an enemy to the throne of God today, and that enemy hates earth children because they are just. And he isn't. He can't create a blooming thing. If he could, there would be a trillion fallen angels in the universe because he'd just keep creating them. And he can't. There's only one procreating race in this universe. It's the human race. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, mark it well in your little brain right now. That is why both forces of light and darkness have everything they have trained on the human race because the loyalty of this race is contingent on the choices that we make. Nobody can touch us. God can't force your choice. He can't force mine. And neither can Lucifer. Good news. You own the freedom to choose the God you will serve. You can choose naturalism. You can choose Darwinism. That makes you happy. You want to be your own God? Be my guest. But I don't know about you. I got six evidences up there, and I would want to think that the best choice right now would be to choose the Creator. Choose Him. All right? Evidence number six. We've got to fly. These last two go quickly. The sealed ones are given a global mission. Oh, by the way, because these are his friends at the end of time. Notice this. The sealed ones are given a global mission and message that proclaims, write it down in Revelation 14, 7, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. Let's just, in fact, read the, uh, this is the first angel. Boy, you, you travel around Loma Linda University and you, every, you know, every now and then you see three angels wall and the church tower. You'll see the three angels. What's up with the three angels? Ah, the first angel is making a point. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. So whatever it is, it's good news to preach to those who dwell on the earth through every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice. There it is. John just loves the megaphone. Megalophone is saying with a megaphone. This isn't a little whimpered message. This goes to the entire planet with a loud voice. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him. I beg of you, worship the one who created you, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Would you jot it down, please? Revelation 14 is clearly a call to earth's inhabitants to return to the Creator 
and his Sabbath. The very language in the Greek Old Testament in the fourth commandment is repeated here in the Greek New Testament in the first angel's message. Same language. Worship. All right, number seven. Here we go. The one, last one. The one who seals God's friends. Isn't this something? Is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus calls him in John, same writer, Gospel of John. He's the spirit of truth. Let me tell you something. When the, when the Holy Spirit seals you, you'll know the truth about the Sabbath. You'll know the truth about the Lord of the Sabbath. It's got to, they have to go together. Whom Jesus called the spirit of truth in John 16, 13. That is, ladies and gentlemen, seven compelling evidences that the sealing of Revelation describes a loyalty to the Creator God that will be evidenced on this planet just before the return of Christ by a loyalty to the Lord of the Sabbath in the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath as His time, His holy time. When you're sealed, you're sealed in that loyalty. So, what kind of seal do you have on your forehead? Hmm? Who's written His name on your forehead? Who's written His name? I want to end with a picture. Oh, I see that you have to fill this in. I'm sorry. Fill this in. The very spirit that John was in on the Lord's day is the one who seals the Creator's name and the Creator's day upon the minds and hearts of an end-time generation. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to end. After talking about these seven compelling evidences, I want to end with this picture. You see that picture on the screen that's in front of you? That is the picture. That is the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know... Do you know that Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath before He became Lord of salvation? Did you know that? Yeah. He was Lord of the Sabbath first, wasn't He? He was Lord of the Sabbath first, and then He dies, and He becomes the Lord of salvation. True or false? But of course. You know, sometimes in our community of faith, you and I accept it, of course, but sometimes in our community of faith, the burden is so strong to just say, we just tell everybody, we're the Lord. We believe Jesus is Lord of salvation. We just believe that Jesus is Lord of salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Well, there's nothing wrong with thanking Jesus, and there's surely nothing wrong with believing what the Bible teaches, that He is the Lord of salvation. But you know what? As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we are not giving the full scope of the truth about Christ when we focus on the second part of His Lordship. Before He was ever Lord of salvation, He was Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. What happens is if we blank out his, what he was first and we focus on what he was last, what happens is the Sabbath begins to lose. It, lo it begins to lose its luster. I mean, you know, well, so what? This is the seventh day. We need extra rotations. It's time and a half. This is the perfect time. It's okay. You know, it's just another day. Jesus is Lord of every day, isn't he? What begins to happen in this subtle shift to what he became second is that we lose the memory of what he did first. He is first Lord of the Sabbath. He is second Lord of salvation. But when we focus only on what he did second, what he did first begins to quietly lose its place. And so what I do on Sunday, I do on Sabbath. What I do on Monday, I do on Sabbath. What I do on Tuesday, I do on Sabbath. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, what's the difference? It's Sabbath, but it's just another day. Hey, listen, I understand 
this community. I'm married to a nurse. The healing arts have to go on 24-7. You don't shut a hospital down and you can't stop healing. Seven of Christ's greatest miracles were performed on the Sabbath as if to say to every health worker that would ever come along, you join me when you heal on this day. But you know what? Because it is His day, I don't walk in to those hallways with the same mind. I know what time it is. I know I have the rotation. I'm not volunteering so that I always am earning extra money on God's day for me and not Him. Of course I won't do that. But when it's my turn and I'm moving down those corridors and I'm stepping into those septic rooms and I'm standing beside a besheeted patient, I'm remembering in these 24 hours that I follow the Lord of the Sabbath in this mission. And anything I say is to heal. Anything I do, the touch is a touch of healing now. I'm not just hurrying through this patient because i got 15 more of these before I can go home. No, it's the Sabbath. And it's my rotation. And the Lord of the Sabbath, through His Spirit, is walking down these halls with me. I will linger. I will take that extra time. I will invest myself in my patience on this day in ways I may not do on other days because the healer is my Lord. And this is His day. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord of the Sabbath was the Lord of the Sabbath before He became the Lord of salvation. And for the Adventist church, thank you, Annie, for planning this weekend. Thank you for having it on your heart. Let's have a revival. We'll never have a revival in the, in the Adventist community of faith until the Sabbath is revived. Never, never, never. We can't pretend we're somebody else because we're not, and we'll never be somebody else. We know that there are two halves to His Lordship, and we will have to be faithful to both halves to have a revival. So you want a revival on this place? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. You cannot have a revival and ignore the Lordship of Christ on the seventh day of every week of time you have until you die. He is Lord of that seventh day. It is mine. My seal is on it. I will seal you if you accept it and accept my Lordship on that day. I will not seal you. I will not seal you unless you accept both halves of me because you don't know me. And I will have a generation that knows me in the I want to know Jesus, don't you? I want to know Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Christ, Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of salvation, on Calvary, that picture on the wall, that's you. Every sin that our sinful hearts have ever committed shall yet commit all of it. You took it all, bore it all, to wash us by your blood. We don't have to walk out of this door with a single stain upon our hearts washed and cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. I don't know how it works, Jesus. You just said it does, and I'll trust you. It works. And so I want to make a two-part appeal here. While every head is still bowed in prayer, I need to appeal first to Jesus as Lord of salvation. Let's take His most recent work and for a moment focus. Is there a man here that needs Jesus to become Savior of every facet of his life. You've not accepted Jesus before as Lord and Savior, but right now, 
in this quiet moment, it sure seems the right time for you to be invited to say, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. Not a whole lot to go through. It's just, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. Caesar is not my Lord. This world is not my Lord. I cannot be my Lord. I have tried. Would you please be Lord of my life? Would you be Lord of my salvation? While every head is bowed in prayer, I need to ask this. No music, no choir singing, no nothing. Is there a man here that needs to come to Jesus today? You've never publicly accepted him before. I want to invite you to come right out of your, wherever you're sitting right now. Would you come here to the front? Just come to the front. And I want to, I want to join you in a prayer. Is there a man here? Is there a woman here? You've journeyed along. You've had friends. You've had family. But somehow in your own life, you've held off the decision of Jesus as Lord. And you want to say, you know, Jesus, I don't know what this is all about, except if this means that you have first place in my life, I'd like to choose you today to be Lord. If there's a woman here that needs to make that decision, I couldn't walk out of here and not give this invitation. You're standing in the back, you're listening outside of the walls here. You're sitting in the middle of a row that means I don't have to walk across a whole bunch of feet. Look, do you think Calvary was easy? Do you think dragging the cross in front of a gaping, taunting world was simple? He did that so that you would not go away with a stain in your life. There's somebody that needs to come to Jesus today. And you're here. I'd like to invite you to come forward right now. The rest of you, you be praying. You pray. Somebody beside you right now maybe wants it. You pray. Bowed head. Is there anybody here? I could have moved. I could have moved to the next step of this appeal without making that invitation. Anybody? God bless you. Anybody else? Say, what's up, Dwight? I'm going to lunch. Now, I know you're going to lunch. But we prayed at the beginning that God would make this a saving place. And the Spirit is here. And I'm not leaving until somebody has a chance to choose Jesus. Is there anybody else? You've never publicly accepted Jesus before. Anybody else? You're not coming to me. You're not coming to a church. Let's just be very clear on this. You're coming to the Lord of salvation. Is there anybody else? Anybody? The door's been open. You say, now, you know, Dwight, I'm just going through a real struggle right now. Let me tell you something, my friend. If you're going through a struggle right now, that's indicative that somebody's needing you to make a decision. Trust me. It would not be Jesus saying, no, don't make it, don't make it. Now forget it. Somebody is calling you. You're not coming to me. Is there anybody else that needs to come to Jesus right now? Rest of you praying. Thank you.
Lord, give you grace. Lord Jesus, give his arms about you. Hold you close. My second invitation is this. It's just as pointed. You need to make a decision. Having, I'm assuming everybody else has accepted Jesus as Lord of Salvation. That's a quick assumption, but I think it's fair. You've accepted Jesus as Lord of Salvation. And I'm going to ask you, are you willing this day to go on record before heaven and say, Jesus, I have not embraced you as I always wished when it comes to the Lord of the Sabbath. Having heard the truth that you are sealing a generation who will be loyal to you as Lord of the Sabbath as well. I wish today to go on record before you. I don't care if my friends see, but I wish to go on record before you that by your grace, Lord of salvation, I will honor you as Lord of the Sabbath by the way I honor the Sabbath of the Lord. If you wish to make that commitment, I'm going to ask you to step out of your seat and come here to the front. Would you please? is a pointed decision. You're saying, I'm serious about the Sabbath. What I do in my life, He will have to help me. But I wish to go on record today for the Lord of the Sabbath. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Lord Jesus, I accept you today as Lord of salvation, but of course, as Lord of the Sabbath, please, Jesus, help me to honor you this day in my career, in my recreation, in my life. Lord Jesus, please help me. Any others? Listen, guys, we do this so little, so little. Please don't begrudge an extra moment. If your head is down, if the Spirit's not speaking to you and you're not make a commitment here, this is a commitment to the Lord of the Sabbath. Of all communities of faith on earth, I would think this one would have people saying, yeah, I haven't done it so well in the past, but you can count on me by your grace, Lord Jesus. Any others? People are already standing by your aisles, and maybe you just stand where you are. And say, Jesus, I, I'll stand. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all going to die. One day we're going to look like that skeleton right there. Life ultimately comes down to a choice. You take a hand. That's the hand. That's the hand you're left with. In our postmodern world, 
that rules our secular society. That's the hand you're left with. You can hold that hand when you die. That's it. That's all you got. You and I know differently. We know there is a living God who is the creator of heaven and earth. And we, take, we place our hands in his hand. I want to ask the rest of you who wish to renew your commitment to go on honoring Christ as Lord of salvation and Lord of the Sabbath. If you wish to do that as well, would you stand to your feet, please? Holy Father, our Lord Jesus is both. There is no way we can separate it. It cannot be done. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and then he became Lord of salvation. We cannot help, Holy Father, but praise you for both lordships that our Lord Jesus Christ offers. We live in a world where the prevailing philosophy in the media, in the entertainment world, in academia as a whole, the prevailing philosophy is this is all you get at the end, a bony hand to hold when you die. But we live in a community of faith that dares to challenge the prevailing status quo, that dares on the authority of Holy Scripture itself to say there will be a generation at the end of time of men, women, young adults, and children who will have the Father's name written on their forehead. I belong to the Creator. I am His. All His. And so we stand today. We stand with these who embraced You as Lord of salvation. Holy Christ, put Your arms around them. Hold them. Walk with them. Write a new chapter for them. We stand with these who said, I want to start a, write a new chapter in my life. And there are a whole lot of our hearts that thought, you know, I probably ought to be standing right now myself. But we waited and we stood in this general appeal. You know us. We can't play games with you. You already know us and you love us. And we love you, dear God. In the name of Jesus Christ, accept our commitment to walk hand in hand by faith with our living Creator and God and use us. Oh God, I pray, use us on this campus and in this community and around this world to tell the truth about the soon coming Creator King who is Lord of salvation, yes, but who is Lord of the Sabbath and loyalty to both. Seal this decision we have made not only in our foreheads, in our minds, seal it within our hearts and let us go forth from this place washed by the blood of the Lamb, clean in Christ. Go with us, holy God, with joy. Let the Sabbath continue to unfold today. In Jesus' name, let all the friends of Jesus say, Amen and Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Be seated, please.